Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Spotlight, Goodspeed Musicals podcast, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Fling, here on the artistic staff at Goodspeed, and I'm so pleased to be joined by my superstar of a colleague, Annika Chapin, Goodspeed's resident dramaturg and artistic associate. Hi, Annika. Hi, Michael. I knew you were going to go there, but I'm flattered nonetheless. Well, Annika, do you want to tell the world what we'll be diving into today in case for some reason they didn't see the title of the podcast? We are going to dive into Jesus Christ Superstar, the 1970 rock musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice. So I think that brings us to uh, my least favorite segment, hopefully a segment that other people enjoy, the speed test. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. matter. Where I have to try and summarize this musical in a minute, uh, which is going to be weirdly difficult because it's, I'm just going to be like relaying the story that I know from Sunday school back in the day. Uh, For the record, I was very good at Sunday school because I do believe that Sunday school is a game, but that's a conversation for another time. For the record, I never went to Sunday school because I was raised as a godless heathen. Oh, well... Maybe that will inform our discussion. (laughs) I've got one minute on the clock. Are you ready? Ready as I'll ever be. All right. Well, then, three, two, one, go. Okay, so we start with Judas. Judas, not really, you know, we're really not happy with Jesus. We're thinking he's a little bit of a fraud in this moment, or at least not what he claims to be, that everything he's taught has gotten big and beyond him. Uh, and then we go and we see the crowds, and the crowds love Jesus, and that's great. And then, uh, you know, we meet Mary Magdalene, and she's like, you know, everything's all right, Jesus, I love you. Uh, and then um, we see, like, Caiaphas and all the high priests that are like, oh, this is really scary. Uh, Jesus is getting a big following. We need to do something about it. Let's kill Jesus. Um, so basically then we get more and more like the crowds love Jesus, crowds love Jesus. And then, um, we eventually get to a point where, uh, Judas decides to betray Jesus, uh, for 30 pieces of silver. Um, and, uh, we get the last supper and then Jesus prays in the garden and is like, ah, oh, I don't know, God, why do I have to do this? And then the people come and get him and they uh, put him on trial and then, um, he's going to get crucified. King Herod. <laughs> Oh, that was not very good. That was not very good. No, you got you you got the gist of it in there. I mean, I as a, my years of Sunday school training have uh, definitely left me, and my family will not be happy when they listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because but this is the thing that I think we should establish, though, that we are discussing the story of Jesus as related in the show Jesus Christ Superstar. So, on some level. Whatever we're talking about, whether we're talking about Jesus and Judas, et cetera, we were talking about the characters in this show as portrayed by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, not necessarily the Jesus of Christianity, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of people's personal religions. So there, there is, I think, a distinct difference there. So there, And it is not a direct adaptation of the Bible. There are events of Jesus's final days that are left out of Jesus Christ Superstar notably the fig tree so i remember some things grandma love you mean it um (laughs) i really do i love my grandma and she's a proud listener of the podcast and that is going to bring us to why god why why god why today 
where we talk about the big idea that governs the show, connects the characters, drives the narrative. And it's difficult to really boil the show down to a, a simple idea, but I think the two ideas that are at play here, depending on your view of the show, I think, is the, the question of faith and also the question of legacy slash fame and what fame can do to a movement when someone gets bigger than their own individual self. Is that a fair summary or like idea that governs it, Annika, do you think? Because that's what, those are the two kind of parallel tracks that I see. Yeah, I think that's probably pretty accurate. I mean, we'll talk about this a little bit later. I think this show has a lot that it intends to get done and maybe doesn't quite have the meat to fill that story out. But I do think that those are the governing principles of what it's going for here. Because, and I bring up legacy because it seems to me that there are so many of the characters in the piece that are struggling with how they're going to be remembered or how their actions are going to be remembered. Particularly when we get to, I didn't bring up Pontius Pilate in the um, summary, but particularly when we get to Pontius Pilate and the impact the crowds have on him, how Jesus is concerned with a lot of these kinds of things as well. Judas is concerned that he's not standing up for what's right. So there, are, I, I feel like that is a thing that the characters are very much grappling with, but then with Judas as the protagonist, or with Judas at least as the framing device of how we're looking at this story, the central question I think is faith. And does he have faith that Jesus is the Messiah? And, you know, the questions that come from the way he sees Jesus acting versus what he may believe and the, the interplay of that and that conflict. Yeah, I think that's that's a lot of it, definitely. I think there's also a lot of it that, as you said, is about fame and just in terms of when you become something bigger than your self, bigger than your particular message, then you really lose control of what that message is. You really lose control of what people make of what you've created. It becomes something other than yourself, which I think is also sort of something that this show addresses in terms of how much around Jesus is not really about what he was actually preaching and, and how much of it became about the politics or the what it meant for this group, what it meant for that group, you know, the implications of what he was preaching on other people and just, you know, the creation of a superstar and what that means, what the what the ripple effect is from that particular notion. So, Annika, do you want to take us way back to before and tell us about the origins of Jesus Christ Superstar? We can never go back to before. All right. So in the beginning, um, just kidding. We're not going to do that. I, I mean, I don't envy your task. Yeah, right? <laughs> the most backstory of any particular show and the least at the same time. So perhaps you've heard of a, a little book called The Bible. It's actually been really influential in our world. So yes, uh, I'm going to just put that aside and assume that everybody understands and knows the uh, story of Jesus and the history of Christianity to a degree. Jumping forward many, 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 many years. Andrew Lloyd Webber is born. He was born to two musical parents. His father was an organist and a composer, and his mother was a violinist and a pianist. So he was raised just surrounded by music. His his brother is also a world-class cellist. It was just sort of in 
all around him from the very beginning. So he wrote his first music, a suite of six pieces when he was only nine. And then his aunt, who was an actress, brought him to the theater. And as soon as he started going to the theater, he, he knew he wanted to write for the theater instead. So by the time he was 15 and he went to music school, he was already writing a musical about Genghis Khan called Westonia, which is with an exclamation point, which I hope exists somewhere because I would love to take a look at that. And he had also set T.S. Eliot's book, Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats to music, which is kind of fascinating because that will later turn into cats. I just didn't realize he had a musical relationship with that source material so early, but he did. So only two years later, when he was 17 years old, he met Tim Rice, who was a 20 year old budding pop songwriter. They decided to work together, uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber as a composer, Tim Rice as a lyricist, and they wrote two shows, one of which was Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. So that was a reasonable success within its own um, sphere, although it didn't get to, uh, to Broadway or the West End until after Jesus Christ Superstar. You know, and Joseph is obviously really interesting because I think we think of it as after Jesus Christ Superstar, but it really did come before and laid the groundwork for them to be able to do Jesus Christ Superstar. Right. Uh, because they really wrote Joseph with the idea that churches would use it and kids would perform it and to, to be something that would be produced in churches. I mean, they, that was very much the intent, um, but to make it cool and fun and accessible. I think it's safe to say that and fair to say that they more than accomplished that goal with Joseph. And so a lot of progressive church leaders around them really encouraged them to look at some other biblical sources, notably the, the last days of Jesus. And Rice in particular was really interested in the character of Judas uh, and in trying to make him a little more three-dimensional than he is often portrayed. And the quote that he was really inspired by was a lyric of Bob Dylan's, uh, which is, did Judas have God on his side? which I think is a really interesting, just understanding that that is the seed of the story of Jesus Christ Superstar. So this started as a very small record deal to record just the, the song Superstar. And Mike Leander, who had produced their first single, really loved the idea. And Weber was really interested in trying to fuse all of these musical styles of a, a symphony orchestra, gospel, rock, and soul into the sound of this show as the rock movement was taking hold and becoming ever more popular. That was really what they were interested in. And they managed to get 70 pieces in the orchestra for this initial single of Superstar. And then they ended up even doubling that in post-production. So it sounded as if 140 instruments were playing this song, which is insane to think about to me. And then the B-side of this single was this symphonic suite almost that became called John 1941, which has a lot of the melodies and motifs that they plan to use throughout the show. And they were pretty aware from the get-go that they might offend some people, both Christian and Jewish, because of the nature of the story and the nature of where they were going to go with the story. And the initial release wasn't really a big deal at first. Uh, it didn't really take off, except in some fringe territories, but they made enough money that the record company put up the 20,000 pounds to record the rock opera. So once they knew they were going to be able to record the rock opera, they went off into the country for a few days and really worked away. They say on the structure, although some reports at the time say that they got a lot of the score written as well. 
They ended up deciding to put the single Superstar at the end of the show and accompany Jesus' journey from the place of his trial before Pilate to where he would be crucified carrying the cross. So once they got it all written, they had tons of issues casting the album. There are a lot of stories about how they found some of these people. But they got it recorded through thick and through thin, um, and the producers suggested adding Superstar to the end of the title um, as the piece was previously called Jesus Christ. So that is how it became Jesus Christ Superstar. Good change. Uh, I think Jesus Christ would have been a little hard to Google later. Even yeah, maybe Google. difficult. Um, so Superstar, you know, making its claim there. And so then they, you know, went off into post-production and all the things. And there's a really fun story about Android Weber being so excited to show his family the test records that um, had been made and his new girlfriend and all these things. And they were going away on a trip to visit family and the test records were destroyed by aftershave that broke in his luggage. Um, and so they only got to hear King Herod's song, which is like the most on <laughs> the most, like not like the rest of the score of the whole thing. So I just, I think that's fun. A little fun, fun ditty. And fun story about King Herod's song as well. It is very different from the rest of the score. And apparently it started its life as a song that Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber has had written as a submission to the Eurovision co Song Contest, um, which obviously is that huge contest in Europe. I'm very upset it doesn't broadcast in America because I would watch it every year. So anyway, in 1969, they had written this song called Try It and See, but it didn't make it. It was rejected from the Eurovision um, selection process to be the rep to represent England. So that was the song that they turned into King Herod's song. And the other one that I love is that I Don't Know How to Love Him was originally a totally unrelated song called Kansas Morning, which they wrote in 1967. And the lyrics were, I love the Kansas morning, Kansas mist at my window, <laughs> which completely scans. I mean, it's the same song, but uh, it ended up in a very different form and is now beloved in a very different and I dare say better form. So the initial reaction to the release of the album really wasn't that crazy. It was kind of like the single. It was a little bit of a, oh, okay, cool. It came out, not going to be that big a hit, fine. And they went over to America to promote the album. And initially American critics reacted really strongly to the piece. And the initial American press tour was, was way more than they expected. They went from New York to LA even up to Canada. And after they had done all that, they got back to New York and that's when the backlash began as Andrew Lloyd Webber recalls. So the journey of putting it on stage is almost secondary to all this album stuff. I think it's important to understand that it really was conceived as a concept album, as a rock opera to be listened to. But getting it on stage was its own entire journey. And Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice ended up giving the rights to Robert Stigwood. And right after they inked the deal, Webber got a telegram from Harold Prince, one of his absolute heroes, uh, inquiring after the rights for Jesus Christ Superstar, which is just funny as we look at the history of Broadway and they end up, of course, having a major relationship working on Evita and Fan of the Opera, two of Andrew Lloyd Webber's biggest things. And interesting from a legal perspective, Jesus Christ Superstar did a lot for writers and rights holders in this country because at the at the initial outset there was obviously this album and it had gotten quite a bit of a following in America and people started staging you know like arena performances of it and big like concerts of it 
and which really led the producing team and the writing team to create this huge arena tour concert thing to kind of quiet these other productions that were happening that were illegal uh, basically and so they filed a bunch of things and the US Court of Appeals ended up defining grand rights performances for the first time and established that a complete dramatic work performed in concert even if performed without staging was a grand right. But the Broadway production as a whole was pretty haphazardly put together because they obviously had this big rock band and microphones were not what they were now so they ended up using handheld microphones there are tons of horror stories of their tech process and the only major difference between the album and what ended up on broadway as they added could we start again please for mary since she basically disappears from the second half of the album so the cast for Broadway came largely from the album, uh, with Jeff Finholt coming from the tour, and then Ben Vereen, who Andrew Lloyd Webber loved, even if he thought he was a little too polished for Judas, but he doesn't hold Ben Vereen responsible. He talks about what a great experience it was to work with him. And funnily enough, even though the role of Mary Magdalene had already been cast with a club singer that Andrew Lloyd Webber had found, he also auditioned a then only known for singing in that gay bathhouses, Bette Midler, for the role of Mary. And he said, quote, if ever an audition could have undermined a casting decision, this was it. Her rendition of I Don't Know How to Love Him was mind-blowing. Her interpretation of Tim's brilliant storytelling lyric was truly moving. I console myself knowing that if Bette had made her Broadway debut in the upcoming Glitz Fest, it would have been a chronic waste. So I think that's a really nice, uh, just like, ode to Bette Midler, but also kind of talks about how he reacted to the Broadway show. So yeah, so the Broadway production opened in 1971, directed by Tom O'Horgan, and um, it did not do super well. It was nominated for five Tonys, though, but it won zero of them, and it had one definite non-fan who was Andrew Lloyd Webber. Andrew Lloyd Webber hated this production. Later he said, quote unquote, never in my opinion was so wrong a production mounted of my work, which is uh, pretty definitive. So it also got mixed reviews and it was protested by many, uh, by religious groups for being blasphemous, by suggesting Jesus and Mary had a physical relationship, for not including the resurrection, which we'll get into a little bit later and for making a, a complex character out of Judas, who obviously is the traitor of Jesus and people didn't want to feel that he was in any way good or complicated. Jewish groups felt it blamed the Jewish characters for Jesus's death. And later it was banned in some places for being religious propaganda, which only goes to show that you really can't win. It was, it was, it was problematic on both sides, the religious side and the people who were um, anti-religion. Well, every, I mean, everyone has a reason to hate Jesus Christ Superstar, I think, is is the moral of the story. Yeah, everyone has a reason to hate Jesus Christ Superstar. That's a good, concise way to put it. It is interesting to note that this is also probably the first musical that we've featured on the podcast to not be nominated for Best Musical at the Tonys, which is kind of crazy. There's a very small list of shows that have had a lasting, huge impact on musical theater that did not earn that distinction. Yeah. Um, and m most of them, frankly, are because it was before the Tony Awards existed. But it does join a very small group of shows that I think, without question, really changed the industry. Uh, but that production didn't change the industry. 
Yeah, it's so interesting. I, I feel like that's also such an unusual trajectory because normally the first production is what makes something famous and that is what causes it to have the momentum to become big and popular and canonical. But in this case, the first production was so terrible by some accounts that it easily could have tanked the show except for everybody knew the concept album already so it had momentum and it's funny they did a production in england not long after the broadway production which was directed by a different person very different production that was much more successful than the broadway version um it opened in 1972 and it ran for eight years as opposed to the original one which only ran about three in new york so so this was something that was really famous before it landed on Broadway, which honestly might have had something to do with it not being well received. Sometimes Broadway can be very territorial about things that already come in with its success sort of predetermined. There can be a little bit of resentment about that. But also it sounds like this this production was a, was a stinker. Yeah, and certainly there were some people at the time who applauded the score and, and thought that there was a lot of good in it, but that it just didn't rise to the par of what it needed to be. Although it's funny, the New York Times critic compared it to the Empire State Building, saying that it seems momentous and then you get closer and it's not attractive. And I was like, hey, lay off the Empire State Building. <laughs> 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 yeah, what a weird comparison. Anyway, so. But interestingly enough, Annika, as much as it was controversial, the Pope liked it a lot, right? Yeah, this is so interesting. So the concept album was played in its entirety on the the Vatican's radio network with little intros that they had recorded from Andrew Lloyd Webber and, and some other people involved. And, and they said, we think this is very important and we, we wanted to share it. And then later when the movie version was made, it was screened in a private screening for the Pope. So from the beginning, even though it's been sort of controversial on a religious front, the Vatican, which obviously is the most august religious institution has been on board with it, which is pretty good of them because I do feel like it is exposing a whole new audience to a biblical story in a really meaningful way. So, Right. And I think it also is the point that we'll talk about a little bit later that the show isn't necessarily anti-religious or saying that Jesus isn't the Messiah. It's just raising questions, which back to what I was talking about with the big idea is fundamentally faith, right? That you have reasons to doubt it, but you do you do believe it or not. So it's just it's interesting that it, it has had such a wide range of reactions within every community. Yeah, absolutely. So the film adaptation had been underway for a while, and it was directed by Norman Jewison, who had recently directed the silver screen adaptation of Fiddler on the Roof, uh, which was quite successful uh, and definitely has a, seven, a late 60s, early 70s vibe about it. Uh, it comes out in 1973 and is pretty um, successful. I don't know that it holds up super well. It definitely feels of its time, but it definitely increases exposure to the material. Yeah, and really ever since then, this is a show that that has been fairly consistently produced. There's been tons of international productions, lots of revivals, both on the West End and on Broadway. And the notable ones, I think, on Broadway, there was a big revival that came from the Stratford Festival, um, 2012, starring Paul Nolan, Josh Young, and Chalini Kennedy. In the UK, there was a show called Superstar, a television show in 2012, so the same year, which was a reality show to choose the actor to play Jesus in a big arena tour with the show. Side note, the UK does those reality shows better than the US does. They've done a few casting ones, and they're always a lot of fun. The ones in the, the US are vaguely embarrassing. And of course, there's the 2018 television version that 
NBC aired starring John Legend as Jesus, Brandon Victor Dixon as Judas, and Sarah Bareilles as Mary, with Alice Cooper as Herod. It was pretty badass and excellent. It's pretty spectacular. I think it's probably the best of those live things that happened. I also totally have friends who were involved, and I just think it's incredible. Yeah, I think it's both one of the best versions of the musicals live for sure. And also I think one of the best versions personally of Jesus Christ Superstar. So it was a it was a triumph all around and, and that's a that's a tricky thing to pull off. I totally agree. Completely agree. And in my personal favorite existing Jesus Christ Superstar thing, <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it. There is a Chilean heavy metal band called Jesu Cristo Metal Star that has performed a show for a decade. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? That's bananas. So, you know, if you're in Chile and you want to catch a show, then look up Jesu Cristo Metal Star. I think it's also important to say, too, that the creative team feels like the arena tours and things like the NBC Live production are the most effective way to stage Jesus Christ Superstar. Those tend to be closer to how they envision the piece. A lot of the time they'll talk about how a proscenium tends to dilute the impact of the show, which I, I think is interesting. And so in that same vein, one of the arena tours turned into a Broadway revival in 2000, which then was broadcast on PBS and was for a while kind of the quote unquote reigning champion of Jesus Christ Superstar adaptations, though I would personally say that it has been eclipsed by the recent NBC Live. But just an interesting thing to note that performing the piece and how it is performed is very much at play when talking about Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah, absolutely. It reminded me a little bit of what we talked about with Les Mis, which is the sort of the French double definition of théâtre versus spectacle. And the, this is definitely in the spe spectacle part of things. It's really designed to be an experience um, as much as, if not more so, than it's designed to be necessarily a, a story told to you. So, Annika, how about you take us into the words and show us what's inside Heaven on Their Minds. What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. All right, so let's dive into Heaven on Their Minds, one of my favorite songs. And the first or second, I mean, we'll talk about it number from Jesus Christ Superstar. I'm going to be listening to the original concept album from 1970. So if you want to go and listen to it or many, one of the many other versions that exist, go do that now. Then you can come back and we'll go through some of it together. All right, so let's dive in. <laughs> Okay, so I'm just going to jump in with this very little tiny bit because already we have so much. So as I said, this is sort of the first number of the show. It's sort of the second song in the show. But the first part is this kind of opening introduction. There's no, it's not really an overture. It's not really a number. It's kind of this sort of musical illustration of some of the stuff that's happening with Jesus. Um, it's sort of up in the air as to what happens during it, but this is the first proper song. And that first number is a little bit kind of mushy in terms of its different songs. It sounds a little bit like actually Cats, which obviously Andrew Lloyd Webber would write later, but it's kind of a different mix of stuff. It's not really one song. It's, it's not really one feeling. It's kind of all these different things happening. And then this vamp comes in and just clears it right away. 
clears all away that confusion and just settles you right into it. And it commands attention because it is so badass. That is the best word for that vamp. It's a little bit dark. It's a little bit dirty. It's definitely rock. And it's nothing angelic or pure or what you might expect from a show called Jesus Christ Superstar. You're already dropped right into the tone of the show, which is going to be something very different from what you might uh, be expecting to hear. So it's just a great way to kind of introduce this song, this show, and also especially this character, because you know that whatever character this music is introducing is complicated and dark, edgy, and there's a lot of interior stuff going on, because this vamp sort of indicates that there's a lot of feelings and a lot of stuff, and we're about to hear it all. And then, of course, we get uh, My Mind is Clearer Now, which is so cool, because it drops you right into his thought process. This is the first spoken line of this entire show, but it sounds like we're dropping into the middle of someone's thoughts mid-flow. My mind is clearer now. Like, what from when? From wh when is before? And what was the thought process before this? And when, when was his mind muddled? It's all kind of unclear. It's not really, a lot of opening numbers will lead you by the hand and kind of introduce you to a world. This is very much not that this sounds like the end of a phrase and musically it's the same it's it doesn't sound like it's the beginning of a song it sounds like somewhere in the middle maybe at the end he's really dropping down into this my mind is clearer now it's a statement it's very definitive but you're also super intrigued because you don't know what he's talking about and if you might not even know who he is too because we've had no indication necessarily of who this character is. We know who Jesus is because we've probably seen him at this point, although what he's doing is another thing. But we might not know that this is Judas. We probably will because we know the, the topic of the show. But if we don't, we're really intrigued by who this person is. And if we do know who Judas is, then this sounds quite sinister because it sounds like he's made a decision and we know what famously Judas's decision was around Jesus. So either way, it's really hinting at the darkness to come, but it's a really excellent entry into this song and into this show. And it also indicates for you that you're not gonna get a lot spelled out for you. It's really going to give you some stuff, but it's gonna leave a lot up in the air, a lot for you to find out and a lot for the production to provide. If you strip away the myth from the man, you will see where we all soon will be. Okay, so then we get a little bit more into what he's thinking about. And this is all very deliberate. It's not that same dropped into statement of the first line, but this is definitive, right? Each of these notes feels very deliberately placed and is given space in this sort of stepped down melody. It's not impulsive at all. It's very thoughtful, very precise, very on purpose. And it's equally intriguing, like the first line, at last he says, all too well, I can see where we all soon will be. We know he's wrestled with this a lot because he's saying at last. Again, we're, we haven't been led into any of that process before, so we're not on that train too. We're just taking it from him. But where they all will be, like what, what is he talking about here? And then you have this line, if you strip away the myth from the man, 
So the show is telling us right off the bat the kind of show it's going to be, especially regards to Jesus and Jesus's divinity. He doesn't specify exactly who he's talking about, but given that we've really only seen Jesus and the show is called Jesus Christ Superstar, it does seem like we can make that leap that he's definitely talking about Jesus. But myth is such an interesting word to use here because myth is usually a word that's used for things that are not real, uh, fables, things that are... stories that are told, right? So he's telling us right away what he thinks of what's happening with Jesus, right? He's indicating that the divinity around Jesus, the talk of Jesus's divinity, everything that separates him from Jesus the man is something that he doesn't really believe in necessarily. And that's going to be a real theme of this song. But right off the bat, that that word choice is really indicative. And again, we get, we get this line, you will see where we all soon will be. It's a little bit of a tweak. The first time he says, I can see, and now he's saying, you will see. And this is an interesting about this thing about this song. And I think it's partially because it was a concept album to begin with, but it's really, really unclear who he's singing to for this song. A lot of different uh, productions have staged this in different ways. Sometimes Judas is talking to Jesus very overtly, like they're walking together. Jesus is preaching, the other apostles are there, and Judas is talking to him. They're interacting almost as though it's a scene, but he's singing the song. Sometimes it's a little bit more reserved that Judas is kind of overlooking Jesus and his works, and he's just singing the song sort of to Jesus, but sort of not to Jesus, definitely not so overtly. And some of them, he's kind of singing it more to us. A lot of them do it in a mix. Uh, this is what we mean when we say this show is sort of something that you can, you can take in a lot of different ways. So it's a little bit unclear for some of this whether it's intended to be him saying this directly to the Jesus standing in front of him or whether he's just kind of expressing his feelings for Jesus, at Jesus, but not necessarily as though Jesus is a person who can actually interact with him back in the course of this song. But also this line here, you will see where we all soon will be, does not feel like that one's for Jesus. That one does feel like it's for us. And again, this is the opening number, so it kind of, in some ways, is for us. We're, we're the ones who are being led into this. Jesus! You started to believe the things that serve you. And now we're getting some of the real Judas, the sort of deliberation, the idea of the, the beginning being really thought out, being really a statement of something he's thought about a lot. He's really come to a decision and here's the decision. All of this control and thoughtfulness has really slipped away. And we get this anguished cry on Jesus. The first time we hear the word Jesus in this entire show, the first time Judas is saying it in this song, even though we know who he's talking about, he, he can't maintain that kind of control that he's had before. He can't maintain that sense of deliberation, of argument. This Jesus is from the heart. It's this kind of wailed, you know, emotional cry, and it feels impulsive. He can't help but try to get through to Jesus now, right? After the first part, it felt like perhaps he was talking about Jesus. And then we hear this other stuff too. We've started to believe the things he said, they say of you, you really do believe the talk of God is true. We can feel that this is emotional for him as well. He's really losing control of of his earlier argument and thoughtfulness. 
the melody here is building and climbing up, which mirrors the first verse, but it's, which was going down. So it's different. He's not dropping into something. Now he's like kind of scrambling, building on top of it. Feels like he's getting more upset, less able to control himself. And although these phrases aren't phrased as questions, you're start, you've started to believe the things they say of you. It feels a little bit like they're questions. Like he, he can't believe that Jesus is believing this all of this stuff about Jesus being a God. He's still in the state where he's upset by this. And then of course we get to the real meat of his argument that Jesus's work will fall by the wayside since Jesus the person is becoming more important than Jesus's message. And we can hear that this line is really emotional for him, right? And it's such an intriguing thing to say, right? Like, I'm in, tell me more. Uh, tell me more about this argument. Tell me more about what you mean, Judas. And for the first song in the show, that's a great place to be. But it's also a little bit interesting because we have seen pretty much none of this, right? We've, we've maybe seen Jesus preaching with his apostles and his people in the beginning kind of intro part of the show, but it can depend on production to production. And we've certainly never seen any of the progression of Jesus going from being a preacher of a good message to being someone who people believe in um, as partially divine. So so we're kind of, we have to go through Judas with this message. We have to just believe what he's saying. Listen, Jesus, I don't like what I see. So this part is great too. So after he's gotten upset again, and he said, you've begun to matter more than things you say, which gets back to that kind of wailing place, as we said, that emotional place. There's a little break here. And then we go to this other part and he's trying a different tack. He keeps doing this, right? He's done this twice already in this song. He starts out really deliberate, really thoughtful. He then goes to something that's a lot more emotional. He's getting upset. He's thinking about all this stuff. And now we have kind of the third tack, which is he's just a buddy. You know, it's not that he's upset. It's that he's concerned about Jesus and reminding him that you know, he's, he's his buddy, right? He's, he's been there all along. I've been your right hand man. It's just like, uh, he's appealing to Jesus. It's sort of like, listen, Jesus, I don't like what I see. It's just kind of like a conversation here. Does it work? Not really, because we've already heard him go through the, the first part, which feels very sinister and like he's made a decision. And then the second part where he's upset. So we just don't believe him really that he's, he's actually just concerned about Jesus. You have set them all on fire They think they found the new messiah And they'll hurt you when they find they're wrong Ooh, this is interesting. You have set them all on fire. They think they found the new messiah, which is a very funny, very British rhyme, right? Because if you speak with an American accent, fire and messiah do not uh, rhyme. But if you are with a British accent, obviously they can. But he's saying, he, he drops into this low place and he says, they think they found the new Messiah and they'll hurt you when they find they're wrong. So Judas is for the first time in this kind of conversational buddy place saying that he thinks Jesus is not a Messiah, right? They are wrong to think that they have found a Messiah. But of course, he's softening the message, attempting to soften the message by having it be in this sort of a chatty section. 
more on the sinister part, right? He's reminding Jesus that he's been there from the, since the beginning again. No talk of God, then we called you a man, right? That feels like a little bit of a dig, right? We didn't have this old ridiculous thing about you being a God. We just called you a man. And then he says, you know, I, I remember my admiration for you hasn't died, which is always a little suspicious because if you have to say something like that, it does kind of flag the fact that your admiration has, has to be uh, reinstated, which mm, feels like the admiration is on the chopping block. And then he takes it a step further, saying that everything Jesus says gets twisted and people will think he's lying. We don't know exactly what this refers to. He might just be saying that Jesus says normal things, the world twists them, they think he's a god, um, and then they think that he is lying because he has said he's a god. And obviously that will, that will come up later when, people, when he, Jesus is asked whether he is the son of God and he says, that's what you say. But it's one of those statements that's like millimeters away from saying that Jesus is lying himself, right? It feels very close to accusing Jesus of lying. And we have these statements, these big kind of dropped statements are in these kind of lower dark parts. There's something a little bit, you know, I mean, Judas is very different from the snake in the Eden story, but there's something a little bit kind of seductive about him. He saves these big kind of, oh, people will just think you're lying for these kind of low, quieter moments which contrasts with this spiky big rage he gets and this anguish when he's singing Jesus. There's so much going on in Judas's mind clearly here throughout this song and there's so much going on with this music. And that's also true in the in the background of the music as well. I mean, this is the concept album again, but like listen to just how much instrumentation is happening. There's all of these rhythms. It's like there's plenty happening right now. We're, we're getting a portrait of Judas's mind, which is kind of a mess, right? He's got all these things crashing together in his head. He's trying all these different tacks. This is not a person who's particularly settled, comfortable, or even really understands what he thinks himself, I think. And that's what we're supposed to get from this kind of, it's not a cacophony because it's a lot more organized than that, but like there's just plenty crashing together here. Nazareth, your famous son, should have stayed a great unknown Like his father carving wood, he'd have made good Tables, chairs, and oaken chests would have suited Jesus best He'd have caused nobody harm, no one alarm So this is so interesting. We get this interesting kind of odd, hoppy bridge which says that Jesus should have stayed a carpenter with his father, right? Causing nobody harm or alarm. It's, it's a deceptively dark message for such a sort of happy part. It's almost this kind of like clapping dance. And often people will contrast it with like people doing a, a dance actually or celebrating together. Um, but Judas is saying that Jesus's preaching is causing people harm and alarm, right? And that Jesus should have stayed quiet, basically not preached. So now we're getting to the point where we're realizing how separate Judas is from Jesus's message because the whole point of what Jesus is doing is about risking his own life ultimately to to make sure that his message gets heard that makes sure that people are are moved by this are heard by it and Judas is actually saying even after he he said you know they'll hurt you which sounds like Judas really cares about Jesus and is is trying to protect Jesus from bodily harm which i think is true i think he does care about Jesus i think he doesn't want Jesus to get hurt and he sees where this is all going but at the same time this is this is a bold statement to say that you know he should have just, he should have just shut up stayed home everybody would be better off so 
Judas is really off sides here. Okay, so then I'm just going to hop through. This is a long song, and I'm not going to go through all of it uh, with a fine-tooth comb because we don't really have time, but I'm just going to hop through the rest of it in big chunks. Listen, Jesus, do you care for your race? Don't you see we must keep in our place? We are occupied. Have you forgotten how put down we are? So now we get this big, big moment of... Uh, the larger political context that do you care about your race? Jesus is what Judas is saying. He's basically accusing Jesus of causing trouble for his people, which is a big statement, but also remind you, reminding him that they are occupied, that they are politically occupied, that, that they are put down. Right. He's just basically saying it's a different philosophy that Judas has here, which is kind of saying like, don't rock the boat. Don't get people angry don't cause a fuss that's going to make everything worse. And this is in some ways an argument that comes up a lot whenever there's a movement. I mean, we're seeing it now with the protests and, you know, there's always people who say it's better to just kind of be quiet, work within the system, try to help things that way. And then there are people who are, who are like, you have to risk whatever you call safety to, to make sure that these issues are addressed. So Judas is definitely falling on the don't make, don't rock the boat, don't make a fuss side of things here. I am frightened by the crowd For we are getting much too loud And they'll crush us if we go too far If we go too far And then of course he's moved his, his true concern which is, has gone from they'll hurt you if they think you're wrong to this sort of, I, I mean, I choose to believe that he he does, that is an actual, it's not just tactic from Judas. He doesn't want to see Jesus hurt. To this is now, I'm frightened of the crowds. He's actually kind of getting a little bit more honest here. They are getting much too loud. We are getting much too loud and they'll crush us. So now the concern is for all of them, basically. And again, he's really skipping between all these different elements. <laughs> Okay, we get it there. We don't have to include all of the rest of that. So, and now we've moved to something else, right? Listen, Jesus, to the warning I give. Please remember that I want us to live. No matter who he's talking to here, no matter whether Jesus is physically there listening to him or whether he's left or he was, or the entire song is delivered sort of at him instead of to him, we get the sense that at this point, Jesus is not listening. And he says again, please remember that I want us to live, right? He's, he's, splintering off 
himself from Jesus, but also a little bit himself from the group. Who is us here? I want us to live. It seems like he's talking about his people. He just talked about the crowd, he, the people. But then he says, your followers are blind, too much heaven on their minds. And so it doesn't feel like Judas is now aligning himself with the followers. He's separating himself out away from the followers. And then that line is such a dig. All your followers are blind, too much heaven on their minds. By which I think he means that they, all of these people are just so enamored of the idea of this perfect afterlife that they're not seeing what's really happening, which is that this is really, really dangerous, right? It was a beautiful thing, but now it's gone sour. This has gone too far. Listen to Jesus, to the warning I give. And then it's just becomes this sort of rocky anguish and we're into the show. So it's a really interesting song. It's a great character portrait, again, of a person who is not having a great, this is not Judas in a really settled moment, even though the very beginning of it does sound like he's officially made the decision. But I think we're hearing all of these different elements. The rational decision-making part of Judas from the beginning, this kind of sinister, I'm going to move forward with this part, this emotional anguished part who loves Jesus and just hates the idea that Jesus is walking into something that's going to hurt him. This part of him that's a little bit kind of petty, separating himself from the followers who are fools in his mind. This person who cares about his people, although honestly at that point, if that falls so late in the song, it kind of feels a little bit like he's just using that as an excuse. And this whole thing, which sounds a little bit like a child who's not being listened to by a parent, right? He's going to try everything he can think of to get the attention of Jesus. And none of it seems to be working too well. And then under all of this, we get this great kind of rocky music, which is all in that kind of dark minor key vein, bringing us forward a lot of energy here, but allowing us to sort of hear this almost twisted thought process that's going on with Judas, this mix of emotion and, and mental stuff that's ending up in this kind of like angry, upset soup that is him right now. So it's a bold, bold choice to be the the introduction to our show. And it's amazing that it's a song about Judas and Judas making some legitimately good points in this song. I don't think we come off this song. We do think that Judas has not managed to very successfully make an argument. And he's really shot himself in the foot with stuff like Jesus should have stayed a carpenter and shut up at home. That really has lost him some points. But he's he's not totally wrong about what he's saying about Jesus having become himself more important than the message of Jesus, right? The show is called Jesus Christ Superstar. And what Judas is pointing out is that if you turn this man into this God figure, then people are not going to listen to what he's saying. They're just worshiping him, which is a very good point. So it gives us a lot to go into this show with, a lot to chew on, a lot to see. Some of this won't really pan out. Some of this we will not see a ton more on. But the fact that it's here is giving us a lot already. And then of course, that vamp, which is the best of all vamps ever. And that brings us to how do you solve a problem like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the internal and external forces that uh, cause issues for Jesus Christ Superstar. So obviously we've already mentioned a lot that the show is quite controversial. Basically any and every group finds uh, something at issue with Jesus Christ Superstar. Notably, as we've as we said, many religious groups find it to be completely irreverent and 
are upset that it doesn't feature the resurrection and it's already cast a lot of doubt on the um, foundational story of Christianity. And then you also have a lot of Jewish groups that believe it to be very anti-Semitic with the Jews turning on Jesus and the way that Jewish people are portrayed in the piece. So Annika, I guess my question is, I fall into the camp of I don't believe Jesus Christ Superstar to be anti-Christianity or anti-any religious group. I, I very much believe that it's a discussion of faith and a discussion of the doubts that can be raised around any religion and how do you contend with that. To me, that's how, and maybe that's just how I rationalize it um, with my upbringing and, you know, the world that I, I am forever the optimist. So I always try to look for the no one's wrong side of everything. But am I being a little too naive in that? What is, uh, how do you feel the outside controversies affect productions of Jesus Christ Superstar and how people receive them? I mean, I, I do think that this is in many ways sort of a Rorschach show. I mean, I think you can see a lot in it depending on your personal approach to this story which is obviously a story that for many people in the world has a deep emotional resonance for the good or the bad or a lot of different ways so i'm not surprised that uh it has caused controversy i think pretty much any telling of the story of jesus probably has faced similar arguments about it being just the, the very act of sort of portraying Jesus, who is a, a divine figure to a lot of people as as a human or as a complicated figure or, you know, Judas as someone who might have been doing things for the right reasons or his personal right reasons and not a, a straight up villain. I think any of any time you're doing that, you're going to get this kind of response to me. I, I think it's an interesting controversy because what I find problematic about the show is not the portrayal of Jesus, although I personally was not raised within a Christian tradition. I was I was raised in a sort of Unitarian, have your own relationship to this stuff, treat the Bible as a literature kind of uh, world. So I, with that caveat that I don't have a personal relationship to this story that many people do, my problem with it is just that there's just not enough story for me. I think it's a show that really heavily relies on you bringing in your knowledge of this story to it. And I find that there's a lot that they just kind of leave out that I wish they didn't leave out. They sort of sketch some things and then they don't really dive into it further than that. Jesus, for me, is a character that's a little bit problematic only because I find him sort of blank as a character in this show. I, it takes a long time to really get his perspective on anything. He spends so much time being the sort of overwhelmed Jesus who that we see in Gethsemane, where we get a little bit more of his personal thoughts, his reflections, but we don't really ever get to see him as the figure that Judas talks about, who's preaching a, a specific message, or even the figure that other people talk about, this kind of rock star, the superstar. He just kind of comes in and from the get-go, he's kind of cranky with everybody. When I was reading it again, I was like, man, this is like a very cranky Jesus. He just is yelling at everybody for not doing the right thing, for not appreciating him. I find it a little bit hard to connect to that character in a way that if I was used to thinking of Jesus as a really like open-hearted person who was trying to do the right things, it that would not connect for me. Although that doesn't seem to be the criticism that most people have with the show. So I, I think it's just, I mean, I think the fact that it has such sustaining power to me is an argument for what I think is very important about pieces like this, which is that people are allowed to, through art, 
uh, explore their own feelings about this person, about this story. And I, to me, that's never a bad thing. I think that anything that allows you to dive in, to in connect or engage with a story, to decide what you feel about it, what your relationship is to it, is only ever a good thing. But that's, that is itself something that is not often a part of Christian teaching. Um, that sort of like dive in and have your own relationship with it. It's really a doctrinal religion in many ways. So, so I understand that the fear of something that might move you away from uh, a very strict line of teaching that, that many people experience. And I, I think you're right to to mention that it relies on you already having sort of deitized this figure and being able to hold all of the positive things that are widely known about Jesus's teachings to then kind of turn it on its head. But I also think it is a matter of interpretation on part of the actor. Yes. I think some people, depending on director and vision and their personal upbringing, whatever, could approach all of those things with an amount of anger or frustration. I think immediately of the who are you to criticize her, who are you to deny her, um, leave her, leave her, leave her be. I think that's pretty much what he says, which happens in the the, the Bible too. That, mm -hmm. That's pretty direct. I mean, it's not directly saying what is said in the Bible, but I think there's a way to approach that. Whereas the ha the happy warrior side of Jesus is like, who are you to criticize her? Like, you know, like yeah. I, that's a line reading as a director. You're not supposed to give line readings, but I think there's a point of view there that doesn't necessarily have to be aggressive and full of venom. I think it can just be a simple like happy warrior. I, I use the term happy warrior a lot, but. It can be a very simple plane where we love each other as if they were our, you know, love your neighbor as thyself and all those things. So I think there can certainly be nuance that is found within it. Yeah, the other interesting thing about that is it makes casting really important, too, because I think that there's something about, you know, when John Legend was cast as Jesus, I thought that was so brilliant because he brings there's something naturally sort of soft and kind about John Legend and also something sort of special. He radiates something with his voice and his demeanor. You can understand that he's the kind of person who walks into a room and everybody sort of pays attention to him because he seems like he might be something slightly different than the rest of humanity. So it's a smart thing to cast him as Jesus when the text, the Jesus in the text is sort of this kind of cranky, frustrated person because you don't have to do as much work telling us that he is someone who is sort of special and kind because we naturally get that off of John Legend. Um, so, so that makes that element of it also very important. The actors that you're choosing to bring into this and what they bring with them is going to be a key part of, of your show and, and how these, these various characters are perceived. I, I could not agree more. I, I, I could not agree more. Retweet, retweet, retweet. Uh, because even parts of the music, I think, are quite reverential in terms of being larger than life and having that kind of opulence to the score. There's an opulence that does feel that many things within the church have. Yeah, I think you're right to that it does rely on some of that. And I would, it's funny because you kind of are, you used it as a segue to what I was going to say is the other problem, which is that dramatically there, you know, is a lot of internal conflict, but the lyrics don't necessarily give us that internal life it's dependent on the actors and the directors and designers and creators to really fill in a lot of this because 
when you're looking at lyrics that are everything's all right, yes, everything's fine, and it's repeated five times, or even the ensemble, what's the buzz, tell me what's happened, what's the buzz, tell me what's happened, what's the buzz, when do we ride into Jerusalem, when do we ride into, you know, they sing it over and over and over again, and it's catchy, and it makes you want to sing along, and it's got a real, like, force behind it. it certainly makes it a lot easier to memorize in some ways, but that's not necessarily theater, that we were not actively engaging in a story and i think that lies in this whole like the concept album was meant to be a rock opera meant to be heard i think it's why the creative team loves it in arena and tour settings and in concert settings because that it is the celebration of the music and the music carries it and as as theater or at least traditional proscenium theater it has some issues that come up and it i think probably isn't as satisfying as listening to the album because when we first sat down to do this, I was like, oh my God, I love this show. And you were like, oh, I thought it was like kind of creaky. Like, you know, we, we immediately had varying points of view on it. And I think it's super fair because it, it kind of depends on where you're at, but it does kind of inherently lack, while it is very theatrical, it doesn't always quite feel like theater to me. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think it's an interesting case of what is its strength is also its weakness, which is there's really not a ton of story that they tell. Also, I think it's oddly complex. I mean, that was my reaction to it this time, which is like, I always go into the show and I just love the first half an hour of it. And then I just lose my way a little bit. I find it hard to keep track of Caiaphas and Pilate and Herod and, you know, the, the, it gets really into the the story of these and these three kind of people in power and they all have their own agenda and, it, and it's only in the lyrics and it's sometimes very dropped in. They don't, they don't really take you by the hand through this story. So by the time we get to the end, I'm always a little bit like, okay, I obviously know what this story is, but I'm also a little bit like not sure. I, I've gotten a little bit lost in it, which is kind of ironic considering it's probably the most famous ending of a story that everybody in the world will know um and it just that loses me a little bit i you know the the i wish there was more of the story that they talk about in heaven on their minds i wish there was a little bit more of the story that mary talks about you know we it, it tips its hat at other stories happening within this story but it doesn't actually tell those stories um and sometimes it just it loses you. And it's funny because when they talked about having to do it as a concept album, um, from the get-go, they said, the creators have said that it helped them shape the thing because it, it made it more focused, it made it more authentically rock sounding. Um, and I think if this had started out as a show, it would have been a, a different show. It would have been something that probably was a little bit more um, fleshed out in terms of story. So I'm not necessarily sad that it's not fleshed out, um, but it does make it a little bit hard for me to connect with it on a, on a storytelling uh, level. And that's, that's how I connect to things because, because I'm a dramaturg and that's what I go for, but the music is great. And I'm kind of glad that it's unusual because I don't think that every show should, should follow the same rules. But centrally it's spending a lot of time kind of just asking those questions. It's asking the questions of the audience while not, necessarily asking them of the characters, which is, so the experience is very dependent on what you bring to it, I think is another summation of what we've kind of said. But ultimately, like Judas is asking a lot of really hard questions and it no one answers them 
right? right. And I don't even think the authors answer them. Some yeah. people think the authors answer them, but they, I, I would argue they don't. And it's interesting because the, obviously the show has been controversial from the get-go, but um, there's an interesting exchange when they were on the David Frost show. They had, you know, people were picketing the show and um, there's this inter- exchange that I just want to read for the audience because I think it's really interesting in context of this. Um, Frost said, I know we've got three or four people here who have strong objections. Do any of you think this is something that shouldn't be have been attempted at all? A man answered, Quote, the very concept of staging something about Jesus, whose name is sacred to millions, is abhorrent. I think the album is blasphemy, a distortion. And here we have this tinsel idiocy giving those who think like it something to chat and joke and jest about. And there were some people, you know, who agreed with that in the audience. You know, it's a chat show. Um, and Tim answered, quote, I would just like to say that if Christ cannot be taken into the streets, into the fields and houses, then he has no meaning at all. If he is only gettable at in an obscure church down the end of the street with lots and lots of ceremony, then that is why he has become meaningless. Andrew added, quote, I remember the Dean of St. Paul's in London saying, please try and take Jesus down off a stained glass window. I don't know whether we've succeeded in doing that, but I certainly agree with Tim wholeheartedly. If Jesus can't be discussed on the David Frost show in a serious manner, what relevance has he? He added with feeling, I'm sure if he'd been alive, he would have been very happy to come in and talked on the program himself, whether he would have enjoyed or approved, you know, left unsaid. But I think it's an interesting, at least as a way to, I hate to say provoke discussion, but in a way to, I don't mean provoke with animosity, but to to begin conversation and to begin reckoning with some of these things. It's again, why I keep going back to this question of faith. Blind faith is not real faith. Faith has doubt. And that is at the center of what Judas is asking. And the show doesn't really answer that. I think some people think it does answer it by not showing the resurrection, which I I don't quite buy into that argument, although I totally understand it with the fact that the final piece is talking about the burial and there is literally no mention of the resurrection. But it asks very interesting questions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... I... I love that. Thanks for sharing that, that quote and that, that thought, because I totally agree. I mean, I kind of feel like it's a question of engagement, you know, it's if religion is something that you can only learn and not challenge or question or try to shape for your own understanding of in a, in a true way, um, that feels less valuable to me than something that will engage people who might not respond to the traditional doctrine of the teaching, but, but might actually engage to this story and then go find their path there through it. I mean, that just feels like something that, that is, is ultimately more valuable. I think it's a really valuable point you bring up that if it helps people engage with the material and go and look into it, then it's ultimately a good thing. And, I think you can use this show as a teaching tool and as an introductory method. And like they said, that these stories are still relevant and they raise interesting questions and we should engage with that as humans and not just blindly follow any one person's teachings. Yeah. And that brings us to one of our favorite segments, our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things where we share some of our favorite things 
about Jesus Christ Superstar. So Annika, let's start at the top. Who is your favorite character in Jesus Christ Superstar? You know, I love a campy, ridiculous villain. So I'm going to go with Herod because I just... I love that. I love that choice. It's it's <laughs> just, it's like probably the character, maybe the only character who feels like he's actually having fun in the show because everyone else is sort of beset by angst and and suffering and guilt and torment and what to do the right thing. But Herod really just seems to be enjoying his, his own particular power and villainy and it's so silly and that that whole number i mean is so unlike anything else in the show and it's it's always staged in such an oddball campy way and i just think that herod is is fantastic and what a like it's such a meal for an actor you know any part where you're sort of given license to just chew 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 that scenery is just going to be fun I mean it there's so much charles nelson riley about it it oh, like yeah. i love i love it yeah. What about you? Who's your favorite character? Well, I'm going to give the uh, maybe obvious answer and say Judas is my favorite character just because I, I think his songs are great. I, I'm so interested by the the way he goes through the story and, you know, everything about it. It's it's hard for me to not say Judas. Maybe just he's the author's voice asking these questions and whatnot. But I think those questions are so interesting as everyone can kind of tell from previous segments so i have to i have to give it to judas yeah judas is also a really excellent choice so what's your favorite song in the rock opera that is jesus christ superstar oh this is a little bit hard because i i do really like this score and i i think it's a such a fun thing to listen to but i cannot even tell you how long i have just loved especially that vamp i mean for the vamp alone i i have to give it to heaven on their minds i it's just one of my favorite songs of all time and i love it and it would be wrong of me to pretend like i liked another song in the score more than that song because i just love heaven on their minds i more than respect that choice what about you well i agree i love the score i it's it's hard to pick one because they all go together. And much like you, I love the first 30 minutes of the show. I think it's pretty fantastic. But I'm going to go ahead and give my favorite song to, I, I, as much as I want to give it to the title number, because I love the title number, I don't want to be so basic with all of my favorite things. And we haven't talked about Simon's song, which when you get a phenomenal performer in that role to sing the bleep out of that material, it is profoundly amazing to me. Um, and it, I couple that with Hosanna and they feel like, you know, cause it grows out of the Hosanna and all that stuff. But I, it, it is so, so good. And I just, it, it knocks me back every time it's heaven. I mean, it's, it's, I did. So I'm going to give it to, to Simon's song. That's a great choice. I like that a lot. So what's your favorite, your favorite miscellaneous, your, your favorite catch-all, your random favorite thing about Jesus Christ Superstar? I think the crucifixion, because I feel like in every version of Jesus Christ Superstar that I've ever seen, there's something that happens that's kind of remarkable by the end of the show, which is that when you get to that crucifixion, it's really kind of a, a 
stunning moment, no matter what people do with it. I've seen different versions of it. I mean, I think the one that sticks in my mind most clearly is the one from the NBC Live where they brought him up into the air and the huge doors of the entire theater space, warehouse space opened with this light pouring in from behind it and he just disappeared back into this light. I've seen it where it's it's just a sort of floodlights coming behind this cross. Whatever it is, it's always a very striking moment and it's always a very simple moment. And I think what it does is after all of this rock music coming at you, after all of this story coming at you, after all of this stuff coming at you over the course of this show, it gives you this real moment of, I mean, I say appreciate, I don't mean in a good way necessarily. It really makes you sort of stop and understand how awful and horrible, you know, that, that moment of stillness, appreciating just the terror and badness and what that actually means for a person to be crucified, I think achieves actually a great deal of really allows you to uh, sympathize and, and feel that very deeply in a way that I think most Christians would really appreciate and understand. It's a theatrical moment necessarily, no matter what they do, but every choice I've ever seen anyone make in that moment has, has had that effect of stillness, of really making you feel that deep in your gut in a visceral way. And I just always think it's a, it's a beautiful and, and important moment. And it's funny you bring up the NBC Live because in some ways, like, that is my third favorite thing about Jesus Christ Superstar. It is, to me, it's definitive in terms of what we've seen already from the piece. I think the work from the actors, the work from the ensemble who is, like, working overtime and doing an incredible Camille A. Brown choreography and just the whole concept of the whole thing, I thought, was so electric and so exactly what the piece should be. So in some ways it like should be my th favorite thing, but I think I'm going to give it to the Pontius Pilate trial scene, which, you know, having now researched the show and heard Andrew, a lot of Andrew Lloyd Webber's intent with the music and how smartly he really crafted the score on that level. The trial scene has always been so impactful for me, similar to what you were talking about with, with the crucifixion, just in the 39 lashes that Jesus gets and the absolute conflict within Pilate about whether or not he should do this and is this the right thing to do. And the entire psychology of that moment from his perspective is very interesting to me. And you've got the crowd, of course, and the, the crowd, the mob, basically. But something about those 39 lashes and that one, boom, 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 two, is so completely just uh, horrific and terrible. And it pulsates with such an energy that to me, it's, it is a, it's its own kind of torture in, in, in a smart way because you're, you're, I think you're forced to think about what that would feel like every single time. And it keeps going and, and you as, an, as a listener, as an audience member are like, oh my God, when is this gonna end? And then you start to think like he's getting whipped. I it's, so I think it's a pretty powerful moment of music and theater and storytelling. So I think that, that, that probably gets my third favorite thing spot. Yeah, that's, it's so funny because I was thinking of exactly that too, those lashes and having us experience every single one of them. You're so right. It is is so effective um, and just so moving and, and harrowing. It's interesting what they choose to, in this show where they choose to not dramatize a whole bunch, what they choose to dramatize is, is smartly chosen sometimes. Uh, yeah, totally. 
Well, that brings us to our final segment, Corner of the Sky. Gotta find my corner of the sky. Where we talk about this show's place in the overall musical theater canon and the impact it has had over the years. So, Annika, what is Jesus Christ Superstar's Corner of the Sky? Oh, I think this is such an interesting one. I mean, I think certainly as this kind of sung through rock concert musical, in in some ways it's it's pretty unique in its form. I can't think of another, I mean, there are obviously other rock shows that have come after and before, but I can't think of one that, that really is designed to be a concert in the same way that this one is designed to be a concert. It puts musical theater back at the center of American conversation which as much as we respect Stephen Sondheim and uh, a lot of the greats that we worship all the time, this was a time where musicals were slipping out of the popular domain. And this is right at the heart. I mean, it was the number one charting album for a while, and it was kind of the last to do that for a long time. So I, I, I think that's important to note. And, you know, the whole rock opera kind of concept album thing is still something on some level that exists as a route to Broadway. I mean, Evita is a concept album, which, you know, Chess is a concept album. Tommy is a concept album. American Idiot is a concept album. Jagged Little Pill kind of become is a bit of a concept album. Town, obviously Hamilton was kind of originally conceived as a concept album. So this is still something that's very much in our ecosystem. And this is kind of the first to really make that splash and and break that glass ceiling. And and the other thing is too, I think, you know, this is a topic that the writers were told when they were first thinking about it was, I think the quote was the worst idea in history. And I think there's something to be said for the idea of like, a lot of the musicals that we love the most are the ones that sound the most insane. So I think this, this paved the way for other people to come along and say, I'm gonna do this nutso thing, you know? And obviously, and in, introduces Andrew Lloyd Webber to America, which is, you know, no small thing. Yeah, and I also just want to say, it's funny, because I feel like Andrew Lloyd Webber has this reputation for being kind of, in many ways, a very basic musical theater composer, basic as the kids use it as a sort of, you know, the, the conservative, you like standard of musical theater but he doesn't get enough credit for these shows that he was writing early in his career especially are crazy out there i mean this is a rock opera concert about the life of jesus christ that's nuts i mean he was breaking form and content rules all the time so he really he was an innovator as much as anything else but he really was was breaking the mold in many ways well that wraps it up for our deep dive into jesus christ superstar I think we discovered the buzz and what's happening. I don't know about you, um, but I think everything's all right. So, <laughs> so Annika, do you want to tell everyone what will be in the spotlight next episode? Well, yes, I would love to, because next episode we've got trouble in River City because we're going to be doing the Music Man by Meredith Wilson, which we're both extremely excited about. <laughs> I have said before i have publicly said i've probably worked on this show more than i worked on any other show ever i've done like five or six productions but some ungodly number considering the years i've been on this planet and involved in theater i would work on this show every day of my life if i could i absolutely love it with every fiber of my being 
it is truly a fantastic show. I also have worked on it a fair amount. I actually almost thought we had already done this on the podcast because I think we've talked about it so much just in life. Listen, I was a Winthrop. Obviously, I look like Ron Howard, so typecasting. But yeah, I 76 trombones, a big parade. Gary, I can give me my lift. Oh my God. No, thank you, Amaryllis. Come to life right before our eyes. <laughs> I want you to do the whole podcast in character. I oh, you know what I also I absolutely can do is all of Rock Island. Yes, by myself I can, I absolutely can. We should really stop because I'll be tempted to prove that I can do it. So yeah, yeah. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye everyone. Bye everyone. This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. Our podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation, the Burry Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit www.goodspeed.org. See you next time!